Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on Shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Yeah. Fool me, can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? I am Ben Kissel. Uh, Marcus Parks is out today. He's busy doing something. I think he's in love with the girl. So they're probably eating pickles together or something like that. Uh, but I had a great opportunity, and I had to take it, to interview Nick Gillespie. He's the uh, editor-in-chief at Reason.com, and he's a great guy. I've, I've known him uh, for a couple of months now. I was just hanging out with him in the green room of Red Eye over there at Fox News. He's a wonderful fella, uh, extremely bright, and uh, I think you'll hear from the interview. He's, a, he's an optimist, uh, and he actually doesn't think the whole world is going to burn down anytime soon, which is, is, is quite refreshing. So uh, here is the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Ben Kissel. Marcus Parks is, again, he's not here. He's at some zoo or watching a movie somewhere. Uh, but we got a guest today. He's the editor-in-chief at Reason.com. It's an honor to have him. Nick Gillespie is with us. Thanks so much for being here, Nick. Oh, it's a pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. So uh, we, d- we discussed before the interview began. I said my first question <laughs> is going to be, uh, you know, why are you the way you are? What brought you on the path that you're currently on? So let's do some bio- uh, biographical conversation. Nick, why are you you? Uh, you know, I think it's because my mother drank and smoked all through her pregnancy. Uh, you know, that's a starting point. That's perfect. Uh, yeah, let's I'm not sure how I am the way I am, but, uh, uh, you know, I was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1963, and I was raised in Middletown, New Jersey. And uh, I suspect I am a professional libertarian. I, yes. I've been working at Reason Magazine since uh, 1993. Uh, our motto is free minds and free markets, and uh, I like the idea of being as much in charge of my own life as possible and yes. extending that to other people. Well, let's and talk. I think part of I was going to well, yeah, ask me to go, so I'm just okay. Say, you go, Nick. Part, you go. Part of that comes from uh, being raised in New Jersey, where you are, uh, you know, you you recognize very early that the world is generally an ugly place mm. and is. Uh, you know, uh, you're going to you're going to have to do for yourself if you want to get ahead in the world. So I well, think that informs a lot of where I come from. And I think that that's a wonderful, uh, you know, that, I mean, that that's a great philosophy to have through life. You are your own God and you should, uh, you know, be the uh, director of uh, of your own um you know, you, you should direct your own path. 
When it comes yep. to libertarian politics, obviously I'm a big Gary Johnson supporter this year. Uh, I believe that uh, he's a viable third party option and he could possibly get, uh, you know, at least 5% of the national vote and we could have uh, federal funding matching, uh, federal matching funding in 2020. Mm-hmm. Why do you think uh, self-reliance, independence, uh, you know, being your own, uh, you know, deity, why do you think it's such a difficult thing to drill into people's minds that they don't need the government to tell them what to do? And what was it that, that led you to this, uh, to this place of like, like you being in charge of you. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, first off, I think that most people believe that, uh, you know, for the most part, um, that, um, and it's not, you know, nobody is pretending that um, everybody does everything, you know, by themselves and on their own and that you don't get help or you don't belong to the community or society. Um, but that I think most people recognize that whether they like it or not, they're going to end up being responsible for the choices that they make and for the lives that they lead, the decisions that they make. And I think we act pretty responsibly for the most part as Americans, you know, as a society. And what happens is that when we start to translate that into politics, particularly electoral politics, you know, then you, suddenly you're in a duopoly. Every part of our lives, over, you know, and as, so I'm in my early 50s. Uh, everything in my life, everything in everybody else's life over the past half century, we've been getting more and more choices, more and more options. You know, there's 50 types of uh, genders you can be on Facebook. There's sure. three dozen types of Pop-Tart flavors, and they're constantly coming up with new ones and hybridizing things. There's Ten, uh, from what I understand, uh, there are ten types of Astroglide personal lubricant. Everywhere we look, there are more and more choices, more right. and more options, more and more individualization of our experience, of our thought, of who we are. And then you get to politics, and there's just, you know, there's Team A and Team B, red and blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a that's a different issue, I think, and that it's, it, it tamps down the fact that I think most of us, you know, we, more than ever, we believe that we're individuals, that we're worthy of respect, that other people, you know, we want to be tolerant, we want to be inclusive, and we do, you know, we want to be responsible for our, for the way we live and for the companies that we build, for the uh, children that we have. So I feel like there's, you know, libertarianism is everywhere in our world. Pretty yeah. much except politics. So when it comes to, I mean, obviously, so you were born in the 60s, you're early 50s. I'm mm-hmm. 35 years old right now. We have some younger listeners who are in high school still or, or, or just graduating. And they express to me how militant and what a police state it is for them growing up on a regular basis. I graduated high school in the year 2000, 420, 1999, Columbine happened. And 421, mm-hmm. uh, everything changed. It was locked down. It was police state. You felt as if you were a criminal, even though you didn't do anything wrong. Although I probably did do something criminal, but that's that's beyond the point. Do you feel like we are living in a more um, restricted society now than the one that you grew up in? And if so, what can we possibly do to start peeling back on these uh, ridiculous laws? Yeah, uh, you know, that's a really interesting question. And then I know from previous conversations that you, like myself, went to Catholic high school. Yes. Um, and it, uh, here's, here's what I'll say. In almost in virtually all ways, we are much freer and less repressed and less suppressed and less oppressed than we were when I was, uh, you know, in high school. Hmm. There are ways in which that is not, you know, constantly going. But think about it this way. If you're black, if you're a woman, if you're gay, if you are any anything other than this kind of imagined mainstream person. Mm -hmm. Life is better now than ever. You have more freedom to live how you want to live, to express yourself, 
uh, to, to create the company that you want, to eat the food that you want, you know, to dress the way that you want. And, you know, there's just this incredible flowering of freedom to be whatever you want to be. It is true, though, that there's also, you know, increasing uh, types of regulation uh, when it comes to certain types of food, certain types of business. Uh, you know, there's no question that if you're a kid, I have two uh, two sons, 22 and 15, and they, in many ways, uh, you know, they don't have the freedom that I had as, you know, when I was 15, my, both of my parents worked, and I, I just roamed around everywhere. Kids today grow up in a more structured environment, but by the same token, I think they're freer. They have the Internet. They have video games. They have cell phones. They can communicate in ways that were unimaginable. So I think overwhelmingly on balance, everybody is more free, we're more prosperous, we're more innovative, we're more comfortable with different types of people, different types of lifestyles than we ever have been. But mm. there are places where, you know, our, our lives are much more uh, kind of limited well, um, or people are trying to limit that, but it's not necessarily working. I suppose I bring this up in the context of technology and in the idea that everything is supervised, everything is on camera, everything is filmed. Mm -hmm. I mean, before, when you were roaming around the streets in the uh, in the uh, 70s of, of New Jersey, yeah. you could really, you can go kick over mailboxes, no one's going to charge you with a federal offense. I mean, <laughs> what about now, uh, as far as um, everything being recorded, does this give you pause for the future? Or, I mean, I actually like uh, your point of view, I mean, and when you think about yeah. it in a civil liberty uh, perspective, I think you're completely right. But from a technology perspective, you know, it's a technocracy. Uh, jobs are going to computers, to robots. We're, mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think that we should do as a society when it comes to those things? Well, you know, I, it's, it's true that everything, uh, or seemingly everything is captured. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know uh, there are cameras everywhere. Uh, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, there's social media. It's, you know, everything you do leaves a trace in a way that it doesn't. And I don't know where you ever heard that I was knocking over mailboxes in the 1970s. <laughs> I swear that wasn't true. You know, there were no charges filed. It was never proven. Uh, but, um, you know, by the same token, I think what happens is that we discount the amount of information that is out there uh, and that, you know, yeah, it's true that everything you do might be recorded, but, like, people are making less and less of a big deal about stuff so that, you know, this it, it isn't as if children are in um, some kind of panopticon and they can never do anything wrong in that, you know, that, you know, if they mm -hmm. get into trouble or they knock over garbage cans in 12, you know, when they're 12 years old, that'll follow them all the way so that they never get into the college they want. You know, we, we discount um, you know, the more knowledge we have of people, we tend to give people more of a break, I think. So uh, on balance, I think we're, we're much better off. And, and, you know, the most important thing about uh, kind of surveillance, I think, is that what's different is not necessarily that people can, you know, people in control can watch the rest of us. It's rather that those of us who are not the power base we can reflect back on, on people who are always in charge. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there, there was that moment during, you know, the, during the Rodney King beating mm. in, uh, in Los Angeles in the early 90s uh, that was caught on an amateur, you know, a guy had just bought a video camera and he was testing it out and he saw the cops beating the hell out of Rodney King. And I think for me that is one of the most important moments in American society and certainly in my life mm. where suddenly – the power was shifted and it was reflected back at the powerful. And suddenly, you know, when you go, you know, since then, the, the real story is not that, uh, you know, cops beat people. They probably beat them less than they used to. But the real story is that we can film them 
and make uh, you know bring that to people's attention and actually change policy. Yeah, and, uh, the the disempowered are empowered now, and I think that that's broadly true. And we discussed that on the militarization of police episode. If you want to go back and listen to that episode of Able Against Top, at you're absolutely going to love it. I'm talking to the listener, and I'm also talking to you, Nick. Um, when it comes to and and you and you touched on this now, um, when it comes to police brutality, when it comes to the Black Lives Matters movement, which I think has mm-hmm. uh, some real validity, specifically when it comes to the prison industrial complex, which has grown under both parties, the uh, the Republicans mm-hmm. and the Democrats. They're both com- uh, both complicit, uh, beginning with Nixon and the war on drugs and going all the way up uh, to our current administration, although Barack Obama has done some good things, re- releasing uh, pr- uh, criminals, uh, releasing, uh, you know, prisoners and uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. de- uh, and, 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 you know, getting rid of the uh, crack cocaine, for example, being five times more punished than cocaine. When it comes to uh, it being spotlighted in society, it's definitely more than it was previously. And of course, you mentioned the Rodney King riots. Do you think that this is, um, I mean, people growing up now feel as if we are in a nation of complete turmoil. You know, they don't remember, obviously, I mean, I was born in 1981. Yeah. I don't remember the civil rights movement. I don't know uh, what Rosa Parks was going through. I don't remember the the, uh, the, the march on Washington. Do you think that uh, these are good things for a society to highlight police brutality and things like that? Or do you feel like it's leading to more civil unrest, even though I think you accurately described the nation as yeah. better as a whole? But it doesn't feel that way, does it? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think we are in a prolonged period of, of, I don't know if it's quite turmoil, but of anxiety. Uh, and, and it's not, you know, part of it is the financial crisis of 2008 uh, and, and the, the Great Recession. Um, part of it started long before that, and it had to do with the with 9-11, certainly, mm. uh, and the Iraq War and the way that that kind of went sideways. And, uh, you know, the, you know uh, you might even say, it started with the 2000 election where we had, you know, a, a presidential election that the closest in history took, you know, weeks to uh, actually figure out who won and who didn't. And it was essentially a coin flip. The 21st century has been disappointing in many ways. Um, you know, it, it hasn't brought it, you know, we don't have our personal jetpacks. We've got a lot of cool stuff, but we do have slow economic growth. We have a lot of different voices, you know, talking and arguing. Personally, I think it's it's generally better. Uh, you know, if you go back to any moment in history, even uh, you know, and this for me, uh, in the 1980s and 90s, a lot of conservatives always used to say, "Oh, you know, the 60s were terrible because of all these riots and hippies and all kinds of demonstrations." But the 50s were good. But if you go back to the 50s, all you read about and all you see in movies are juvenile delinquents and, and beatniks and the atomic, you know, fears of a, a atomic holocaust. Right. Uh, why Johnny can't read? You know, the Russians are going to invade, and it's you know at almost any moment in time, people are always like upset and nervous and anxious. And even in the 90s, where people look back now and say, "Oh, the 90s were great." because everybody was getting rich and, you know, uh, the Cold War was over. If you go back and look at that, and that's when I started at Reason, uh, you know, the Clintons, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, were constantly going on and on about how violence in, in, on cable TV and uh, in music was going to destroy the society. Uh, Newt Gingrich was always talking like right. that. People were terrified of the Internet. They were terrified of immigration. They were terrified of this, terrified of that, terrified of gay rights. So there's always a certain you know, amount of churn and anxiety. 
What is different today, I think, is that we are in a period, the entire 21st century has had very low economic growth. And I think that's partly because the government continues to get bigger and bigger. And when you have low economic growth, basically the economy has been expanding on average around 2% rather than 3% a year. Um, that really compounds over time to a slower uh, kind of growth in the standard of living. And that's really at the rock bottom of a lot of people's anxiety because sure. we're doing better but we're not doing better as fast as, as we kind of became used to. Well, and I think the question is, what is better, right? You know, is 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 mm-hmm. uh, is, is technology really improving us or is it uh, disabling us uh, when it comes to, um, you know, relationships? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of couples have broken up because of Facebook and social media uh, sites and things <laughs> like that. And also yeah. when it comes to automation, we've been talking about this regularly, and I want to hear your thoughts on yeah. it. They say by 2045, roughly half of the American jobs will be taken over by robots. Nike was just able to move a a, a plant back here, but that's because technology was created where they can basically 3D print uh, shoes. It's only a two-part uh, process as opposed to, uh, as opposed to a multiple-part uh, process. So when it comes to self-reliance, when it comes to individual freedom and liberty, when there is no job for you to get, doesn't the government have to come in, give you a base salary like they do in Sweden or Norway? And then how does that, I mean, how is a person supposed to feel any self-worth whatsoever? Well, uh, a couple of things about that. One is that, we, you know, it's, it's worth recognizing that the fear of automation or of a particular job or industry or trade disappearing is as old as human history. And, you know, and, and reliably what happens, actually, people get all hepped up about that. And at the turn of the uh, 19th and 20th century, as cars and automobiles were coming on, you know, the people who were in the buggy whip industry and, and the buggy industry and, you know, the horse uh, trade, they were like, oh, my God, this is, you know, a cataclysm. This is the end of the world as far as we know it. And what inevitably has happened in every moment in recorded history, more jobs, the economy grows, automation grows, and it, and, and it, it, it flourishes because it is more productive. And the more productive something is, the more wealth we have, and then we develop and invent new ways to spend it. So I'm not so worried about the idea that, uh, you know, well, nobody's going to have jobs in, you know, 2050 or whatever. Uh, and as a result, we'll all be hanging out and smoking opium or something like that. And that the government needs to guarantee this or that. Well, I see, now I like, that, now I like your version of the future. I didn't realize yeah, opium that, well, was involved. Well, and it's not so bad. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that if you go back 50 years, if you go back 100 years, uh, you know, much less 200 years, we spend less time at work. We have more leisure. We have more free time. Uh, and what is most important to me, I think, and this is something I said, you know, my grandparents, all four of my grandparents were immigrants from Ireland and from Italy. And they, you know, they came over here. They escaped the worst, you know, drag, drag parts of, of, uh, of old Europe, but Donald Rumsfeld called old Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came here and they worked as factory workers. They, uh, my, one of my grandfathers was literally a ditch digger. Uh, you know, others, they worked in domestic service. They, you know, kind of lousy jobs that were not at all fulfilling, but they put some food on the table. My parents grew up in the Depression. My father fought in World War II. They had much better jobs, but they did not consider their jobs particularly fulfilling or expressive of who they are. My brother and sister and I and people of our generation, we went to school. We were able to go to college for the first time in my family, and we had jobs that we could choose to do or do something else. And I feel like my kids, who are essentially millennials, this is the real payoff of the American dream, which is not simply that you have you know, a house and a mortgage payment 
and a small modicum of individual freedom, but actually that you can live your life as a work of art and that your work will actually be expressive of your values and what you believe and how you want the world to be. And I totally believe that that's what's going on. Uh, it is true that workforce participation rates are down. I think a lot of that has to do uh, with a, a variety of government uh, government interventions into everyday life that just make it more expensive to hire people or keep them on. It makes it, you know, we're a wealthier nation, so people can retire at, a, at an earlier age uh, than they used. I mean, in the past, you didn't retire, you just died. Uh, then, you know, people... People are living better. They're living longer than ever. Uh, and I think a lot of these fears about automation, about not being able to work and then creating a kind of indolent, uh, unemployable world are overblown. Uh, but to the extent well, that they're real, we need to make it easier for more people to start businesses, more people to hire people, and more people to work in, you know, in various ways that they want. Uh, everything in our lives, I think one of the great movements of the past, certainly the past 50 years of my life, but the past 500 years is from these big centralized structures, whether it's the state or the church or the factory or the corporation, to smaller um, kind of uh, more nimble organizations uh, and, and smaller groups and things that are constantly changing and morphing into something else. Uh, that's what's going on, and that's going to be happening with work as well. And, you know, and it's challenging, but it's, right. it's also incredibly liberating. Well, you know, there is a certain liberation to it. The, the people that I'm mostly discussing, my father's an immigrant. He is from Germany. He was a truck driver. Google is coming out with an automated car. They will be, they will be driving themselves. Taxis will then be gone. Uber yeah. will be gone. Lyft will be gone. Tax, uh, you know, there will be whole yeah. industries that will be decimated. Now, what would you tell somebody who is 50 years old, who was a cab driver their entire yeah. lives? What are you supposed to tell them? They don't know about these technologies. They're completely out of the loop. I mean, they say that people my age will have roughly 15 to 20 different careers throughout our yeah. lifetime. The idea of having one job uh, throughout your entire existence with company loyalty and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the companies, this is, this is one of the things where I think, uh, you know, a libertarian perspective and one that is, is real reality based and is kind of not cynical, but realistic, you know, companies never, they never took care of people. It was always, a, it was always an exchange. As long as you were a value to them, they gave you something. And as long as you were getting something from them that you couldn't get elsewhere, you, you know, you were happy to work there. Um, we need to be realistic about this. And when you talk about the 50 year old or the 55 year old or the 60 year old who is dislocated by technological change or industrial change, and it does happen and it's happened in the past, you know, nobody, uh, you know, there's like a hundred thousand or 150,000 people now in America who work in the textile industry. Um, because most of that has gone overseas. Right. Um, you know, and that, that's a real loss of jobs and, over time. But what you, what we need to do is to, you know, there's no question. And I can remember back in the early seventies, uh, when clothes were relatively more expensive because the, the costs of producing them were higher. The way you cut costs is by automating or by getting cheaper labor costs and things like that. Having trade policy that allows for, uh, you know, for a long time, you couldn't get foreign cotton, uh, you know, or, or goods that were made of cotton from India or, or around the world would be so heavily taxed when they came in here, they were expensive. Mm-hmm. Poor people had fewer clothes and they had really shitty clothes. Now you can go to Walmart, you know, Walmart, you're basically buying something that is similar to what you get at the Gap or somewhere else, uh, you know, or H&M. Uh, that's great. It does dislocate people. And I think this is one of the roles. I'm a libertarian. I'm not an anarchist. 
I think that what government can do is help provide a basic social safety net for people, and it can create the conditions under which that 50-year-old, that 55-year-old, that 60-year-old truck driver, ditch digger, or textile worker is able to retrain and at least, you know, and move into a, a new type of industry that is growing um, or, you know, and also be supported while they're doing that. But the idea that you can ever freeze any part of the economy, any part of society, any part of the culture, you can freeze it and hold it, and then that's going to last very long. All you end up doing is forestalling changes that are going to be much more disruptive and much more uh, negative for the people who are affected by them. Well, I think one of the issues that's happening right now, and one of the reasons that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, uh, are not, obviously Donald Trump is currently doing a lot better than Bernie Sanders, but uh, the yeah. rhetoric of, of economic disparity, which is there is no denying the middle class has shrunk uh, to a point where uh, the one percent and the uh, and the and and poorer Americans they are butting heads with one another, and I think that's what we see a lot of the social movements like Occupy Wall Street coming up and, and, and the Tea Party coming up and really getting um, some, some, uh, some support is because the middle class is gone. So from yeah, your no, libertarian I, perspective... Can I, can I disagree with that? Of course. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll do it in two ways. There's no question that income disparity, which you know you're talking about the, the difference from the very richest to the very poorest has grown. Uh, the way that that has grown is not that the poor are poorer than people who were poor 20 years ago, except they're further from the 1%. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, but so, you know, at the bottom, people's standards of living are, are still getting better than where they were 25 or 50 years ago. Uh, and also, and this is really important, is that if you look at income mobility, which is the ability of people to move from one income category to the next, right. uh, there are people like Scott Winship, a, a researcher at the Manhattan Institute, uh, people at Pew and, and other places, they all basically agree that since the early 70s, there has been no change in the rate of intergenerational mobility, so that you know, people, you're just as likely to move up or down the scale as you were in the early 70s. Um, it should be a faster rate, particularly in the upward mobility, but it hasn't slowed down. And I think a lot of this is misinformation. When you say the middle class has gone, again, uh, Pew and Gallup and other places have shown that actually what has happened is that when you look at the kind of statistical middle of the income distribution, it's gone part, it's shrunk a bit mostly because more families or more households have moved up the scale rather than down the scale. And I think we need to be clear about that. There is a lot of anxiety about economics, and this goes back, I think, to that lower rate of economic growth overall for the economy. But realistically, and I'm, I'm not saying that people who are worried about their jobs or have economic anxiety should not be paid attention to right. and that we can't be doing better. But there's a lot of misinformation out there which serves political purposes. And this is particularly, you know, when you think of somebody like Bernie Sanders, you know, I believe that he totally buys into everything that he's saying. But when he says, you know, what we need to do is double the minimum wage because then people will make twice as much money. That's just, it's, it's not just wrong. It is so wrong. And what it does is it, it prices a lot of people, particularly people with low or no skills, out of the labor market, because if you if, you know think about it at any job or any company that you're at, if you have to double the amount that you're paying for labor, you're, nobody can suck that up. They're just right. going to get rid of the people who are the worst workers, or they're not going to hire as many people. And you know, so a lot of the, the policies that are pushed to address the supposed 
you know, deadening of the American economy actually are speeding up the most negative aspect that people are worried about. So, and, and go back and listen, I have to plug another episode of Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. We interviewed Rebecca Trent, who's the owner here of the Creek in the Cave. Uh, you know, she's a very liberal woman and she is against uh, raising the minimum wage for the exact reasons that you just expressed. And I completely agree well, with you. And, and also, this is where, you know, both uh, Trump is not, partic- and I think you're right to lump him with Bernie Sanders. He is coming out of a great sense of uh, kind of disgruntlement in society. He's not, you know, he, just like Bernie Sanders, he did not uh, arise and become a force in politics because people are happy or comfortable exactly. or, you know, because they're worried and anxious. But uh, having said that, you know, when he talks about saying, okay, you know what, as president, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make people have, make employers have mandatory family leave. I work for a company that, you know, that works with people when they're having kids or when they have medical problems. You know, Reason Foundation is a small nonprofit, but we make allowances for people and we work with people. Mm-hmm. Once you start mandating extra costs on employers, and this is something that Obamacare, you know, Bernie Sanders wants to do it, Republicans want to do it for certain types of things. You know, the minute that you start to make labor more expensive, you know, you know what happens. It's basic economics. The more expensive something is, all things being equal, you're going to buy less of it. And there's no reason that an employer is any different than if, you know, if the, if the cost of bananas at the supermarket went up, you know, it doubled or tripled or you were paying 25% more, you're going to buy fewer of those. Right. I want um, to- and that's where we, you know, I feel like a lot of what is going on in America now is that we're stuck in these kind of 20th century mentalities when people believe that big corporations were beyond market forces and, you know, IBM and AT&T and Bell Telephone and General Motors are going to be around forever. And you know what? Like, they aren't around, or to the extent that they are, they're shells of their former selves because they couldn't adapt and change to a more a smaller, nimbler, more competitive world. Sure. And that's what we live in, yeah. and that's what politics has to allow for. And again, you know, let's have a social safety net to help people when they get knocked on their ass, we help them get back on their feet. We don't burden employers and we don't burden innovators, uh, you know, with new ways of creating new companies that serve people's, uh, you know, Of course. And, and you have the Elizabeth Warrens of the world who would like to get rid of Uber and you have the conservatives yeah. who want to pass religious uh, freedom laws and, uh, and yeah. things like that. Well, yeah, but I, want to I want to deregulate it all. I want to, you yeah. know, I'm glad our social lives and our cultural lives uh, and our commercial lives, in many ways, have been deregulated. And right. you know, everywhere you look at where things are worse, worst, it's because it's the. I think it's the heavy hand of government. So when you look at things like pensions and retirement, you know the government is taking care of most of that. Healthcare, same thing. Education, K through twelve education, same thing. These are the lagging indicators. You know, in all other parts of our lives. Things are getting yep. more and more interesting, more and more innovative, more and more experimental. Well, I want to speak with you. constantly changing, except in these places where you can lock down an old system that is serving fewer and fewer people well. Yeah, I want to talk to you uh, coming up here uh, very soon about the Democrats, the Republicans, the duality, uh, the, the 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 lack of choice between the both parties. I, I believe it's a it's a farce. Uh, they're they're the exact same two sides of the same coin. Uh, but really quickly, uh, and of course, going back to your point, uh, when it comes to uh, businesses being flexible, you can see it in new you can see it in media, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, these old media being completely mm-hmm. overtaken by 
reason.com by social media. I mean, they, 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 their lack of flexibility is, is telling and like the wings of a plane bend uh, almost so they can touch each other throughout turbulence. These institutions are rigid and they will collapse as opposed to something like uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, which can stand an earthquake because, again, of its flexibility. I want to get to uh, I, I, want, I wonder what you think about something like TPP and NAFTA, these massive mm-hmm. trade deals. Obviously, Donald Trump has come against them out out against yeah. them. Uh, Bernie Sanders was also against them. What is uh, your Hillary thought? Clinton? Hillary Clinton started bad mouthing uh, 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 NAFTA in uh, 2007, 2008. She was running to the left of Barack Obama on it, even though Bill Clinton was the one who signed even starting NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. But you know, here very quickly, uh, you know, I, I prefer like totally open trade. You know, where you know, and this could be a couple sentences long, where you just say. Anybody in America is is allowed to buy and sell, you know, anything they want from whoever they want. Uh, you know, that's that that would be the ultimate kind of legislation. Short of that, what NAFTA did is it reduced the cost of goods coming in from Mexico, uh, and even more importantly, because we actually were a relatively low tariff country, it made it easier for Americans to uh, sell goods to uh, Canada had been negotiated beforehand and Mexico. Um, so overall, on balance, I think it was a good thing. It created something like 25 million jobs in its first 20 years. Um, and, you know, the idea that trade or, you know, that protectionism is a good thing is, is nuts. Uh, you don't, you don't save things by making them more expensive artificially, uh, which isn't right. to say that these are all perfect. Uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, again, Hillary, Bernie Sanders, Trump, all against it. Um, I actually, well, on balance, from what I've read about it, 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 it advances because of free trade. It lowers a bunch of tariffs and quotas and things like that for American goods to be sold overseas as well as to, for imports to come here. And for that reason, I would mm-hmm. say it, it's a good thing. And certainly, well, what about the idea? We need, to, we need to be careful when we start saying, you know, free trade is negotiable. The whole goal is to get more and more towards that ideal of free trade, not to start coming up with arguments for saying, oh, you know what? Let's, you know, free trade for, for these people, but my industry, I need protection because, you know, my jobs are central to the American identity. But my job, you know, I'm a special case. No, that isn't the way that things should work. And again, the government, and this is the whole point of a libertarian kind of, you know, small but effective welfare state, the government can help people who are dislocated by innovation and change in a dynamic economy, which when it's working properly, it expands and it gives people more options. There are winners and losers that are temporary winners and losers in that. And the government can help those people, you know, again, get off their asses, get on their feet and and learn how to move into the future. So with NAFTA, with TPP, you're defending it. And and I think you make a a very understandable point. What about the notion of? Of, of humanity. What about, uh, you know, human rights? You know, we have a situation where we get most of our uh, cell phones made from iPhone, Samsung, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. uh, from China. And, and this is borderline slave yeah. labor. TPP also opened up the doors uh, to slave labor. What about this notion that somehow, mm-hmm. um, because we want our goods at such a low price, we don't care about the human cost overseas? I mean, does, doesn't this country have some, uh, this is why I'm pro Keystone Pipeline. This is why I'm pro pipelines. I, I believe we need to start building things in this nation again. Uh, don't we have some responsibility to the people of the world these are not mutually exclusive and recall you know that nafta uh you know which went into effect in the uh in the early mid 90s for the next uh you know basically uh 10 years 
Um, uh, and, you know, uh, I mean, the economy boomed. It's not like we stopped making things here, and it's not like the economy contracted. It actually expanded. Um, so that, you know, free trade grows markets overseas, and it grows markets at home as well. So, you know, this, the, that's a false uh, kind of uh, uh, dichotomy. When you talk about human rights, actually TPP, uh, and, you know, Hillary says, oh, it's not strong enough human rights uh, laws in that. The fact of the matter is, is that when American companies start sourcing jobs overseas, they inevitably raise the standard of living over there. Um, and, you know, when you're looking, you know, uh, TPP, of course, was designed, it does not include China because the whole point of it is to create a trade zone uh, of other countries that are in the Pacific, you know, that, that are on the, you know, touch the right. Pacific Ocean somehow to create a countervailing uh, force against China. But the fact of the matter is, is that American-owned, or, or they're not quite owned, but American-operated uh, factories in China improve the quality of life in China so that, you know, they're better than the jobs that people had on the farms or by uh, domestic firms. This happens time and time again. And what, what does change, uh, you know, and I'm not saying it's perfect and it doesn't mean we shouldn't overlook gross abuses of things, but it's the same thing in, in, in American history um, as we become a wealthier nation and we become a wealthier nation through automation, workers and, and, uh, and uh, capitalists or people providing the factory jobs and things like that, our standards of living get better and better and people insist on it. Uh, for the same reason, we, you know, we don't have child labor in this country anymore. And it's not because of laws that were passed in the early 20th century about that. What had happened was is that we had automated, we had become wealthy enough and we became uh, efficient enough at creating stuff where we didn't have to put kids in factories. And you see that same pattern in places like Asia and places like Africa and whatnot. As countries get richer, and they get richer through trade and through automation and through uh, industrialization, uh, you know, everything gets better, including human rights. So we can, we can get on our high horse and say we're not going to deal with the developing world, but that's not going to make them freer and it's not going to make them live better lives. In most cases, it actually is. If you cut them off from the international economy where you say, okay, you can join it, but you have to charge, uh, you know, first world prices in a third world setting for labor and yeah. for safety and all of that kind of stuff. You're consigning those people to a, a horrible, horrible, impoverished life. Well, I want to continue this conversation when it comes to military and, uh, and American uh, imperialism. I know Gary Johnson has been mm-hmm. discussing how he's completely against it, but I want to get back to uh, what I previously teased. When it comes to the Democrats and the Republicans, the illusion of choice, do you believe, I mean, I, I interviewed with uh, Dr. Robert Fertrakis, a, a wonderful man out of Ohio, great professor. He calls this a kleptocracy. He believes that uh, the, the democracy has been stolen by these two uh, entities, the Democrats and the Republican Party. Uh, what do you see as a nation, uh, as a democracy, where are we right now, in your opinion? Do you believe the Republicans and the Democrats are simply there to divide um, the populace, people who might not be, uh, might not perceive themselves to be doing as well as they possibly could be doing? Mm-hmm. Or, and, and is this why you support uh, somebody like Gary Johnson? I assume you support Gary Johnson. I'm wearing his yeah, T-shirt yeah, right I, now. I, I plan on voting. Uh, I plan on voting for Gary Johnson. I did in 2012 as well. And you know, he's not perfect as far as I'm concerned, but. Uh, more than any other candidate in my lifetime, he comes closest to representing my idea of politics. Um, I don't know that the Democrats and Republicans to you know talk about them as uh, a kind of entities that have their own will and that they are you know self-consciously trying to split the spoils of these or that people. Um, I do think that they share much more than they disagree about um, you know in all sorts of ways, and that they come out of things 
you know, these are 19th century institutions that were built around since before the American Civil War. And it's very much about an old command and control understanding of how the world works. And I think we'd be better off without that. Um, the reason why I'm in favor of smaller government in general is, um, is because I think that, you know, smaller operations, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a church, whether it's a nonprofit, a charity or a government, they, they're more nimble and they're more responsive the smaller they are. Uh, but more than that, uh, we need to get past this idea that, you know, a small group of wise people, a relatively small group of wise people can just decide what is right for the large group and then enforce that. Um, the, the less places where that is the rule, and there are places where we do need that, you know, we, we need to have a majority rule. Um, you know, but the, the, the fewer of those, the better, I think. Um, yeah. and, you know, the Republican and Democratic parties are going to change because the, the basic model that they're uh, predicated upon, which includes things like Social Security as it's existed since it was passed in the mid-30s, Medicare and Medicaid in the late 60s, we're out of money for that kind of entitlement program that is really coming out of Bismarck's Germany when there was a, uh, a, a globally rising uh, um, birth rate. We're done with that, and we need a different model of how do you provide a basic social safety net for people, and it can't be the model that we've been using for the past hundred years. Well, how does it it's change? Already broke. How does it change? If you're a politician and you propose cutting social security, all they do yeah. is run an ad with an old lady or an old man crying on their couch, and they open up their mailbox and there's no check, and then they don't have food. Well, and they, just, I mean, how do yeah. you? How, I mean, how do you even begin if you are a politician? If you do uh, happen to, uh, you know, if you if you do get voted into power, how would you even begin to change those things without just being railroaded and, and kicked out of office? office yeah there's uh you know an old joke that uh social progress happens one funeral at a time and uh you know that's that's part of it i mean we're going into a phase now where you know and a lot of this is just generational warfare uh you know by by a different name but there are more millennials and there are baby boomers uh, alive now and that will only that disparity will only continue to grow in favor of millennials over the next 10 or 15 years mm -hmm. um or next 20 years. Uh, but what we need is it's a combination of things. One is that we need to have organizations like Reason, uh, you know, writing the alternative, like, you know, social security is unsustainable in its current form. You cannot have people, everybody in a system getting more than they paid into it while fewer and fewer people are entering it where the, the age, you know, we're, we're growing, we're uh, living longer uh, but we continue to get Social Security at the same age as we did in the 19, uh, you know, essentially the late 80s because it was changed from 65 to 67 and a half, and it's very slowly indexed up. But, um, you know, we need to change that. We need to have an intellectual uh, conversation and a policy conversation about how that is unsustainable and what is the goal of Social Security. The goal of Social Security is not to create a system that never changes. It is to help older people. If you were old, you were much more likely than average to be poor. But it's no longer the case, even independent of Social Security. We need to have a uh, you know a, a real con first of all, we need to have an intellectual conversation and eventually an emotional conversation about this. But where um, you know, if you're wealthy and you can pay for your own retirement, you should. That yeah. is the moral thing to do, and it is the politically 
a sustainable thing to do, just as, uh, you know, you should pay for your own health care, you should pay for your own education. If you are lucky enough and hardworking enough and, and you know, and uh, you know to be able to pay for these things, sure. we can stop having overseas wars, we can stop giving more and more money to corporations and to already wealthy people, which is where most of the transfers go, um, and we can have a smaller government that taxes less and spends less, but spends it wisely on people who are actual in need. As now, opposed to just saying, okay, you're born, you're middle class, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get free health care, you're going to get free education, you're going to get free uh, retirement. Um, you know, and, and, and what you also get by restraining that kind of stuff, and again, this is an intellectual conversation that has to become a cultural or an emotional conversation, but you also gain more freedom. Uh, because if you, you know, your money is in many ways a, a you know, a, a kind of a instantiation of freedom. And if you're paying lots in taxes, if the economy is more wide open and there are more ways to make a buck, you can spend a buck in more ways and you're more free. Um, and again, the people who need help are getting it, but we're also allowed to live our lives as mm-hmm. works of art as, as we see fit. And I think we can make, uh, you know, as libertarians, I think we can make a pretty attractive argument. Yeah, I, it, it, so it sounds to me world, yeah. and transitioning to it. It sounds to me as if you do have faith in millennials, which is actually refreshing to hear because I think millennials oh, get dumped on on a regular right. basis. Who, yeah, who who doesn't though? Anybody anybody who uh, first of anybody who you know just condemns uh, you know in a blanket uh, statement in any any generation or any cohort is is ridiculous and not worth listening to. But why wouldn't you? I mean, uh, I think millennials, uh, you know, and this is something I think about a lot uh, with my kids. I know that, you know, my parents, I, I was not raised with a lot of the baggage that they were being raised poor during the Depression and the children of immigrants. Uh, you know, sexual mores were so frustrating and saltifying. Uh, the roles that were available to people, uh, you know, were just so limited. And, you know, I didn't have as much baggage as they had. And I, I would like to think that my kids and millennials and, and the people after millennials will have even fewer baggage. You don't have to worry about uh, the Cold War anymore. You don't have to worry about the virgin war complex and backward sexual ideals. You don't have people who are hung up on, you know, I mean, there are obviously there are still people who are, but like, you know, when you look at things like cognitive legalization and gay marriage and, and brownness or, or the idea of race mixing, sure. it's not even an issue anymore right. in a way that even 50 years ago it was. Um, yeah. You know, and this is, this is a wonderful well, it's totally free. There are many challenges for millennials that they'll have to deal with, including what do you do with fucking old, you know, baby boomers who won't shut the fuck up and won't stop, you know, uh, you know, eating all the shrimp on the uh, the buffet of life. Like, you know, right. we've got to do something about that. There are challenges, but they are very different. And millennials, I think, have shown an interest in flexibility and looking to the future and being idealistic and coming up with new ways of, you know, doing things like Facebook or Uber. Airbnb, I mean, there's, there's so much open-endedness because they're not fighting old wars that are, you know, that just well, uh, I mean, and that goes time and energy. Well, and that's the final, uh, you know, point I would like to discuss. Uh, um, I know you're breaking up a little bit here with the phone, but uh, just just lastly, when it comes to American imperialism, is that what we're supposed to be when it comes to nation building in Libya? Obviously, Hillary Clinton is the uh, is the major advocate for something like that. I mean, you talk mm-hmm. about millennials not having to deal with a war throughout their lifetime, but if the powers that be continue uh, the power that they have, it seems like it's going to be inevitable. I mean, the forever war of terrorism is is undeniable. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, and you know, one of the things though, that is good, and depending on uh, you know where you were in 2001 or, or the weeks right after the 9/11 attacks when the Patriot Act was passed, you know, one of the things that I think is good is that uh, a lot of elements of the Patriot Act were. Um, I wouldn't quite say that they were declawed or defanged or minimized, but some of them were sunsetted, and there is an ongoing discussion about that. I think people, you know, speaking of other millennials, somebody like Edward Snowden, uh, you know, his revelations, as well as some of the stuff coming out of WikiLeaks and people like Chelsea Manning, uh, you know, what they showed was that the surveillance state or that the liberties that the government took away without even telling us, that it was much broader and more disturbing than ever, and we're starting to have that conversation of is global terrorism, which, you know, statistically is a very small risk in anybody's life, is it worth giving up so much in terms of freedom and so much in terms of potential? And I think we're having that debate as we're more slowly than I would have hoped, but we're coming out of the hysteria in the immediate wake of 9-11. I do think when you talk about things like the Iraq war in particular or the ongoing occupation of Africa, Afghanistan, we're also, as a nation, we're pulling back from that kind of ruinous behavior, uh, not to mention places the way it spilled over into Syria or the you know, NATO bombings of Libya. And we are starting to reevaluate what does it mean to be a superpower in a post-superpower world. And one of the things that I like about millennials is that they tend to be against military intervention. Yeah. I think you know, it, would be, it would have been much better for us in terms of Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya and the situation that we are not, you know, we're not responsible for Assad in Syria gassing and killing his people. It's a horrible human being. We're not immediately morally responsible for, the, for ISIS and the beheading and the horrible activity they do. But one thing that we can do as a country, and that historically we have done, is open our borders to people who want to be free. And I think that's one of the things we can do. We can help engage the Arab world and the Arab Middle East and the Islamic world in Central Asia and elsewhere and help plug them into a global community where they will become richer. They will see that there are better ways to live or different ways to live that offer opportunities through freedom and tolerance and pluralism. Sure. Uh, and you, you're never really going to be spreading that, um, you know, at the, you know, by dropping bombs on people or occupying them or shelling and sending drones into wedding parties. Well, of like course, that. but then I think the millennials, I think the millennials understand that in a fundamental way that a lot of the older baby boomers, like people like Trump, people like Hillary Clinton, people like George Bush, people like Bill Clinton, who was a, you know, uh, sent out a lot of military operations. They were embedded in a Cold War mentality, and even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they couldn't quite shake that off. Right. I agree. So the Cold War mentality is the reason that uh, these people are more hawkish in their uh, in their old age, because they grew up under the stress of constant yeah. nuclear war. Um, well, thank uh, you. You know, Donald Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld, shortly after 9-11 said, you know what, this is a new Cold War we're in. And right. you could see right there that was a major category error because te international terrorism, and you know, it's, it's a bad thing, but it's, it's kind of like crime or it's like herpes. You know, it's not, it's not syphilis. It's not going to kill us. It is not a systemic threat to the American way of life in the way that the Cold War arguably was. You know, that the battle between international communism and free enterprise was, was in many ways an existential, uh, you know, threat. Islamic jihadism and global terrorism is not an existential threat, and we treat it as such, you know, at our peril, because then we risk the possibility of actually 
bringing it up to that level and causing that which we're trying to, uh, you know, to uh, escape. And I mean, these are the difficult issues. We've, we've seen it happen in Germany with Angela Merkel. I mean, I believe she's probably not going to win re-election, allowing almost uh, over a million mm-hmm. uh, immigrants into their nation. And of course, the sexual norms are completely different. And uh, some people want to assimilate, others do not. And uh, I think these will be, there will definitely be some growing pains with the, uh, you know, excess of immigrants coming into our nation, uh, specifically well, from countries here, that we've gone I... previously. But and Nick, we, we got to end it here soon. What do you want? All right. Well, all I was going to say is that, you know, one of the problems is Europe, uh, unlike America, uh, you know, in America, you know, going back to the colonial period, was always worried about immigrants, you know, that it was Germans not speaking English or it was Catholic not uh, praying, uh, you know, that praying to the uh, Church of Rome, we're going to screw everything up and later Jews and garlic eaters from the, the, uh, the you know, the uh, ghettos of Europe and yeah. stuff like that. Um, but we always have, generally speaking, accepted immigrants. And because America is a more open-ended system, we're able to both assimilate uh, immigrants in a more effective way. And so, you know, in the two biggest uh, uh, Muslim-majority cities in America, Dearborn, Michigan, and Hamtranek, which is right next to it, you don't, you don't see radical jihad cropping right. up. Europe, by, tope, by uh, difference, has always had an immigration problem. They have always defined themselves against, uh, used to be in the, in the Middle Ages and the Crusades, against the Turk, uh, which was, a, you know, a kind of vamped up version of an Islamic warrior, an Ottoman, et cetera. They have always had immigration problems, uh, both within the continent, people going from Italy up to Germany after World War II to do labor, or bringing in Turks to do the jobs that Germans wouldn't do, but not letting them become citizens, not letting them assimilate, and not acculturating. I mean, the other thing that's great about America is that not only do we change immigrants, but immigrants change us, so right. that... Literally, I mean, my Italian grandparents on my mother's side who all came over here in the mid-19-teens, they, they never spoke English their entire lives. They were considered foreign and, and strange and subhuman. Um, and, you know, their grandchildren are fully American, were fully white in a way that they were not even considered white. And even right. the Irish up until a part of the 20th century were considered another race. We changed, they changed us. And the genius of America is, you know, and, and this is not an original topic, but we're in a constant act of becoming. America is not hmm. a steady state economy. It's not a steady state society. We are constantly discovering what it means to be American. We are like, you know, Jack Kerouac in On the Road. We are constantly moving forward into a future. We're informed by the past, but we're opened up to, you know, these incredible possibilities that, you know, that splay before us like the stars when you're driving through the Rocky Mountains. And, and you know, we shut that down at our, at really at, at, at great risk. And mm-hmm. this is what worries me so much about the rhetoric of people like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is that they're saying, no, the end, the road ends here and I will control and, you know, for you and for your own good, I will control your options and your limits and all of that. And we, we have to shake that off. They are a dying ember of a fire that was lit in 20th century America. And we just have to, you know, we have to do it for ourselves. We have to pour water on that and restart the American dream in a 21st century model where we're not carrying those bags and we're, we're actually moving forcefully into a future which is different um, 
but is, is even more exciting and more possible because we are more free than ever because of technology and because of the change in mindset and attitude and in openness. But, I mean, it's radically different even than you know, when I was in high school not that long ago. Even just in that, you know, 35-year period or whatever it's been, it's like, you know, the world, you know, America is a much better place. I mean, this is something yeah. like Gary Johnson says all the time, and people look at him. I mean, the people who don't get it are like, what are you, are you nuts? You know, and it's like, right. he, you know, he says there's never been a better time to be alive. And it's true. And, uh, yeah. you know, for all of the difficulties that we have, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we can and will confront those and, and invent new ways to live. Uh, as long as we don't, uh, you know, get scared of, of Muslims and of uh, Mexicans yeah. and of technology. I love it. I mean, it's that eternal optimism of uh, of a true, um, you know, good uh, human beings uh, such as yourself, uh, you know, who happen you you happen to identify as a libertarian. But it's that optimism that really gives all of us hope. And I think that's the one thing that we haven't gotten from Hillary. We haven't gotten from Trump. We do get it from Gary, like you just mentioned. And uh, man, we can use more and more of that in this election cycle because it is as dismal as uh, as it gets uh, when it comes to the rhetoric that both of those two candidates are spewing. So thank you so much. For for being with us, Nick. Yes. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. You're the best. Check out NickGillespieReason.com. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Well, that was it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, you can find Marcus Parks on Twitter at Marcus Parks. I want to thank Meg. Uh, she's the producer for this episode. Thank you so much, Meg. Of course. Anytime, Ben. Anything you want to plug? Not at all. Listen to uh, <laughs> all the great shows at Cave Comedy Radio. It's like you, you did a plug. I did a plug. There it is. Perfect. <laughs> uh, you can find, again, find Marcus Parks on Twitter at Marcus Parks. Instagram is the same thing. I'm on Twitter at Ben Kissel. You can find me on Instagram at Ben Kissel1. Go, jo- uh, go join uh, the Facebook page if you'd like. Um, it's, a, it's, you know, it's fun. People are as the election ramps up, people are getting a little bit more uh, aggressive with their ideas, but uh, but that's okay. Keep it calm, keep it nice, and uh, try to love everybody because you know you don't get to meet that many people before you die. You know you only need a finite a bunch, so you know you want to be nice and leave a good memory. Um, all right, everyone, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to CaveComedyRadio.com. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.